point our time now to uh, the Word of God as uh, Josh will be preaching from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He has come to us from uh, a, uh, a town called Kingman in Arizona. He's the pastor, youth pastor at College Park Church, and he's completed his MDiv from the Master's Seminary two years ago in 2013. He has taught history uh, in uh, a public school and has worked with youth for a number of years. He's taught both junior higher, junior hires and, son, and uh, high schoolers, and he has real desire to communicate the Word of God, especially to youth. And I want to uh, invite him to now open the Word of God, and let's give him a warm welcome as he comes. Well, good morning, Living Hope. It's a wonderful privilege for my wife and our family to come out and visit with you all. And um, this is a, a wonderful part of the country, and it's uh, vastly different from Kingman, Arizona, as you might imagine. Uh, we've just, uh, we're not familiar with what you call trees. And, um, but we've really come to appreciate that, and it's, it's just um, a wonderful opportunity to see God's creation all around us, and, um, but also even a greater privilege is to fellowship with God's people. And so we've been thankful for those of you that have brought us out to dinner or lunch or spent time with us. We've gone to your home, and we've got to know some of you um, a little bit on a personal level um, that we could, that time would afford, and we're grateful for that. It's my great privilege this morning to open up God's Word for you, and so I invite you to join with me to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at just two verses this morning, and... Um, these two verses that we're going to look at, verses 1 and 2, give us a great insight into the identity that we have in Christ. And so to that, we're going to turn our thoughts. And if you would, please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word, if you can. The Apostle Peter writes to the church, he says, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we have the wonderful privilege to open your word, Father. We know that it is inspired, it is infallible, it is inerrant, Father, and it is what you use to sanctify us, Father, your church, Lord. As Jesus said all those years ago, sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. And Lord, we know that you have inspired it, Lord, that you use the Holy Spirit to teach us. Father, I pray this morning that you would be our teacher, that the Spirit would be at work in our lives, revealing uh, sin and righteousness, Father, that we might be the holy church that you've called by the power of the gospel. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Mankind suffers from a great identity crisis. As a result of not knowing God, it has failed in one sense to know itself. We cannot know thyself, as the Greeks put it, until we firstly know the creator or God who created us. And the Bible reveals to us that the only way that we know God is by coming to God through his son, 
that he's revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, when it comes to our identities, we are either in one of two camps. We are either have our identity in Christ or our identity is in crisis. We have an identity crisis for all those that are not found in Christ. So what is an identity crisis? Well, Webster's defines an identity crisis as this, a state of uncertainty or confusion about one's self. Uncertainty or confusion about oneself. And it, it is to leave the proverbial question of who am I and why am I here kind of hanging up in the air, kind of left unanswered as we're walking through life. And sadly, much of the world lives in this state of not knowing itself because it has failed to know the God who created it. It's caught up oftentimes in the endless search of self, trying to find out who we are in creation in the things of this world rather than the creator of this world. English philosopher Sir Francis Bacon of renowned fame, the father of the scientific method, he summed up the search for identity and mankind's identity crisis by reflecting upon his very own. And he said this in, in some very profound words, quote, it is sad fate for someone to die so well known to others, speaking of his own fame, and yet so little known to himself. He was a very famous man during his own time. He was known by many other people and yet when he thought about his own identity, he was saying that he failed to really know himself. And Bacon's observations are profound. Is what we think of ourselves or what others think of us truly what give us identity? Does our identity come from the creation or from the creator? Does what others think and know of us, is that what gives us our identity? Or does it come from something more, something deeper? Are we more than what we do? Are we more than the roles that we play, the clothes that we wear, the hats that we put on, the food that we consume, the entertainment that we enjoy? More than a, a Facebook profile or more than a simple listing in a telephone book? What if all that we took identity in was somehow taken from us? Who would we be then? Oftentimes, Instead of finding identity in the creator, we find identity in the creation itself. We are tempted to find identity in sexuality, hobbies, positions, jobs, cars, brand name clothing, status, friends, and the list goes on, but those are all created things. Things that we would find in the creation. Things that will, if we hang our hat of our identity on, will leave us cold, empty, in lifeless. But one of the greatest implications that the gospel reveals to us is that not only are we given new life, but we're given new identity in Christ. In Christ, our identities are restored to us. We not only know God, but we begin to know ourself, our place in the world, our role, our purpose. In him, our identities are no longer in Christ, but they're in Christ. Paul points out that in Christ, we are dead in sin, but alive to God, Romans 6, 11. 
Likewise, we are no longer condemned, but we're justified before God, Romans 8.1. In Christ, we are united into one body of Christ, the church, Romans 12.5. We're made into new creations, 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're freed from the bondage of sin in death, Galatians 2.4. Wonderful ideas about who we are in Christ. We need not look to creation for our identity. We need simply look to the creator for who we are as he's recreating us into the image of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at two aspects of our identity in Christ that Peter is going to point out in these two simple verses for us. That we might know Christ better, but as a result, know and learn who we are in Christ. This morning will be a search not only to understand who Christ is, but a search to know who we are in Christ. So that's where we're going to go this morning. Briefly, I'd like to mention just a few words about the book of 1 Peter. Since we're kind of jumping into it, I'd like to give us a little bit of a context for our understanding this morning. In the book of 1 Peter, it bears the author's name. It's uh, no, no surprise here. It's written by the apostle Peter. The book was written around 64 AD to believers who were scattered about all through what would be modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor. And as a result of an empire-wide breakout of persecution spearheaded by the tyrant Emperor Nero, the church had been forced to scatter all around. They were in their own diaspora. And no doubt these new believers were feeling insecure as they were, had uprooted from the places that they lived and they were scattered all throughout that part of the Roman Empire. As a result of being persecuted by their government, their family and friends, their identity was being held into question. Who am I if I was a citizen of Rome? Why is the government persecuting me? Why am I being persecuted by my family and friends and rejected by all that I've known in the midst of their crisis, their identity in Christ became all that much more deeper and profound. And beloved, I'm convinced today that in the midst of crisis is when we truly begin to understand our role of who we are in Christ. An identity that is likewise ours when we are found in Christ, an unshakable, eternal identity that's not based on any earthly institution, but it's based on the eternality of God as he's recreating us in the image of his beloved son. So firstly, this morning, I'd like to look at our new identity in Jesus. So our first point is Jesus gives us a new identity. Before Peter launches into the uh, the implications of this identity, he first introduces the identity of identity in Christ to begin with. Look at verse one. He starts off, Peter, an apostle of who? Jesus Christ. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And before giving the two characteristics of our identity in Christ as aliens and as God's chosen, Peter first introduces the identity the identity that we have in Christ, the whole idea of identity. His first words are not merely identifying the sender as Peter or the recipients of the letter, but they are also identifying 
who Peter was in Christ. He was an apostle. It's recognizing his apostolic authority. But with this designation, along with it comes a new identity that Peter received as an apostle of the Lord Jesus. It's a new title, and along with it comes a new identity. Notice that Peter didn't say here, Peter, a fisherman from Galilee. Peter likewise didn't say he's Simon Peter, his common name, but he refers to himself as Peter an apostle. Something new that he was remade into, his new identity is as an apostle. In Christ, he is more than what the world says that he is. In Christ, Peter is more than even he thinks of himself. In Christ, Peter was no longer a fisherman, but he became a fisher of men. He was no longer simply about his earthly father's business, but his new identity in Christ was about his heavenly father's business. His identity was no longer wrapped up in what he did for a living, but it was wrapped up in what Christ did that others might live, a new identity altogether. And beloved, whenever someone has a true, authentic encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, they are forever changed. And it's not just an outward change, but it's an inward identity change. Turn with me if you would, keep a thumb there, but go to 2 Corinthians 5.17 if you would. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul points out our new identity in the Lord Jesus as we're being recreated into the image of his son. Words of identity are spoken to us here in a profound way. Paul reminds us that in Christ we have a new identity. Look what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. What Paul is pointing out here is that our new old identities, that the old things that we used to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in, all of those things are gone, and new things have arisen. Old things have passed away. Old affiliations, old desires, old habits, old descriptions, attitudes, behaviors, responses, patterns, worldviews, opinions, all of these things that we once took identity in as the world, those things are slowly passing away and the things of God and the identity that he offers us are becoming new and fresh and our hearts are beginning to long after the heart of God and not the things of this world. We are new in Christ. The old things have done away, they're passing away as the world is passing away. Part of our new job now is as being new creatures in Christ is to pursue a new identity, to live out the reality that has happened in our hearts. It is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to put off the old man that's being corrupted in sin and unrighteousness, and to put on the new man that is being recreated in righteousness, holiness, and purity. We are to live in accordance with our new identity, to do that which is pleasing to the Lord, 
to no longer identify with the things that once characterized us before we came to Christ. Now, oftentimes, when someone is enrolled in a witness protection program, they're given a completely new life, a new identity. They're not only given a new address, a new home, a new zip code, but likewise, they're given a completely new identity altogether. And it is imperative that that person live according to that new identity. One little slip up, one little compromise of not living that new life that they've been given could spell disaster for that person. For such a person, it is downright dangerous to revisit their old identity. They must completely forsake the old identity, the old life, and be pursuing and forging ahead in their new life. And beloved, it is the same for believers. We've been given a new identity in Christ. We've received a new life, a new home, citizenship in a new country. It transcends all earthly ties. And in short, we've received a new identity altogether. And to act in a manner outside of this new identity is spiritually disastrous for each and every one of us. To revisit the old man is dangerous for the Christian. And though sometimes we fall to that, we don't do so without the consequences and the hardship and the pain that that brings. And yet, the Lord is calling us to a new identity that is being created in Him. And He wants us to move ahead and pursue in find identity, not in the creation, but in the creator himself. God wants us not to find identity in the things of this world, but beloved, in the God of this world. I'm reminded of a famous quote that a 21st century theologian named Lecrae said. He said this quote about identity. I'm not the shoes I wear, I'm not the clothes I buy. I'm not the house I live in. I'm not the car I drive. I'm not the job that I work in. You can't define my worth by anything on God's green earth. My identity is found in Christ. It's a rap song, by the way. (laughs) In Christ, we have a new identity, not based on the ever-changing creation, but by the never-changing creator. The God that invented personhood, the God that I invented identity, who we would be, restores that to us in Christ. That we might be no longer defined by the simple, temporary, transitory things of this world, but by the eternal God of the universe. An eternal identity founded upon the eternal one. Jesus gave Peter this new identity. As an apostle, Jesus gave the church their new identity as the bride. And Jesus is still in the business of giving each and every person that would come to him a new identity. Identity in Christ. So what does this identity look like? Paul moves on and he he gives us two characteristics of this new identity in Christ. The first one being this. Look in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's his new identity, to those who reside as aliens. He's speaking about the churches that he's writing in Cappadocia, Galatia, Pontus. 
that had been scattered all throughout this part of the known region of the Roman Empire. They're residing as aliens. Our new identity is as God's aliens. Now, he's not talking about little green men from space. He's not talking, it's not a reference to UFOs or flying saucers. Believers are not UFOs, they're IDOs, identified dying objects. We are identified in Christ, we're dying to ourself in the old man, and then we're objects of God's affection and God's grace. We're IDOs, identified dying objects. All who are in Christ by their new nature are otherworldly. To put it in sci-fi terms for sci-fi fans, we're extraterrestrial. We are of a kingdom that is not of this world and we're following a king that is likewise not of this world. The word that Paul uses here for alien, it, it describes someone who resides in a foreign land on a temporary basis. We're temporary residents. It gives the idea of a sojourner, a refugee, or, or even a stranger. How many of you have seen those popular bumper stickers, if we were to go out maybe even into our own parking lot, that say, not of this world? It's a popular Christian clothing brand, not of this world, but it, it communicates part of our identity in Christ as being an alien. We are not of this world. That world is alien to us and we are alien to it. No wonder we find much alienation going on even in our own nation amongst the church. So why? Why are we aliens? Why is this part of our identity in Christ? Well, it's because it was part of Jesus' own identity. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to John 8.23? Keep a thumb there in our main passage, but go to John 8.23. Jesus, speaking to the Jews, was pointing out the difference between who he was in God and who they were of the world. And he points out in this brief description that he himself is not of this world. In John 8, 23, Jesus, speaking to the Jews, said this, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world, and then I am what? Let's hear it. What is it? Not of this world. I am not of this world. There is an otherworldliness to Jesus, but a worldliness to unbelievers. Neither Jesus nor his kingdom were of this world. And beloved, if you and I are in Christ, neither are we of this world. Flip a little bit in your Bible forward to John 17, 15. Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus, again, affirms this identity of who we are in Christ. John 17, 15, as Jesus is praying for his disciples upon his departure, knowing that the time for him to go to the cross was near, he said, I do not ask you, speaking to the Father, to take them, speaking of believers, out of this world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are what? Not of this world. Even as I am not of this world. Beloved, this world was not our Savior's home. 
It's likewise all who follow him. It's not our home as well. We are aliens. We are strangers. We are refugees living as exiles. Now, historically, the American church has had the luxury of not fully realizing or coming to grips or understanding this part of her identity in America. We have long lived under the shielding umbrella of the First Amendment. We've enjoyed the rights of religious freedom that are guaranteed us by our beloved Constitution. And yet, we are not guaranteed forever, beloved, that our country will grant that to us. Though it has certainly been a blessing for many years, it is by no means a future guarantee. In a recent Time magazine article entitled, Orthodox Christians Must Now Learn to Live as Exiles in Their Own Country, the writer states this, quote, It is hard to overstate the significance of the Obergfell decision and the seriousness of the challenges that it presents to Orthodox Christians. When a Supreme Court majority is willing to invent new rights, it is impossible to have faith that the First Amendment will offer any but the barest protection to religious dissenters from the gay rights orthodoxy. Justice Alito warned that Obergfell, quote, will be used to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy and will be used to oppress the faithful. The article continues... It says this, we have to accept that we really are living in a culturally post-Christian nation. The fundamental norms Christians have long been able to depend on no longer exist. The article concludes with this, Orthodox Christians must understand that things are going to get much more difficult for us. We are going to have to learn how to live as exiles in our own country. And we are going to have to learn how to live with at least a mild form of persecution, end quote. Beloved, as we look at how the events in the United States are unfolding, I am convinced that during these turbulent times in our own nation's history, God is using this to foster and forge a deeper identity in Christ than we have ever known. An identity that we will turn to when we're looking for our identity in Christ. And as as the world is turning up the heat, so to speak, and if persecution breaks out, it will foster a far greater identity and dependency on the Lord Jesus Christ than maybe the American church has ever experienced in all of its life. Oftentimes, in the midst of crisis, We understand the profundity of life in Christ, what it means to forge an identity in Christ. We are not of this world any more than the Savior was, but we are guaranteed that all who are in Christ will live as aliens and strangers in this world. Secondly, Peter points out in verse 1 that Our new identity is as God's chosen one. So not only are we aliens and strangers, but we are also the elect of God or chosen by God. Look in verse one and two. 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, that's part of our identity, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are what? Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Here Peter gives us another identity, another insight into our identity of who we are in Christ, these new identities. We are not only strangers, exiles, and aliens, but we are also part of God's chosen. Jesus used the same word three times in Matthew 24. Remember in the Olivet Discourse, he said, but if those times were not postponed or if they were not shortened, even the elect would be deceived. Jesus used the same terminology of the chosen of God to describe what the church is as God's elect. So what does it mean to be God's chosen? Who are the elect that Peter is speaking here? Well, when we look into what this word means, it, it, it conveys the idea of that which is picked out or particularly selected. That which is picked out or particularly selected. Now, um, how many of you have ever been to Denny's before? Or you've gone to the grocery store and you've seen those little machines that are like they're toy machines and they have all the little stuffed animals in them and they're in a glass box and you pay a quarter so you purchase whatever it is you've chosen um, and then you take the little joystick and then you direct the little hand out there and then it reaches down and you choose and you select which one you're going to choose. In a very earthly illustration of the deep doctrine of election, that's as best as I can do. <laughs> and in one sense, this is, this is on a very um, childish level that we can understand, myself included, this is what God is doing. We are personally selected, picked out, by God. It's a soteriological term that God is using, referring to all whom God, by the divine act of his sovereign will, is bringing to himself and appointing to salvation. And the Bible uses this terminology all throughout the Bible, the, both the Old and the New Testament, is God is electing a nation for himself who is his chosen. Israel. Is time moves on in the progression of, of redemptive history, God also chooses not just Israel, but he chooses one out of Israel to be the chosen Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the chosen one, Luke 9.35. And then likewise, God chooses all who would place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the church, his chosen bride, Colossians 3.12. The doctrine of election is found all throughout the Bible. It is something that Peter himself well understood. It was a theology of Jesus, and right here it's showing up as a theology of Peter himself. So where did Peter get this? Let's turn, if you would, to John 15, 16, and then we'll look at 19 also. John 15, 16, and we'll look at 19. Where did Peter get this idea of that God chooses those that would come to salvation? It shows up in Peter's theology because it was likewise in Jesus' own theology. John 15, 16, Jesus says, speaking to the disciples, you did not choose me, but I what? Chose you. Skip down to verse 19. Jesus continues, if you were of this world, 
the world would have love for its own. And this is interesting. He's connecting the ideas of alienation with the idea of election right here. And that's why Peter himself in our passage this morning is doing the very same thing. If you were of this world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of this world, again, our identity as aliens, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you, the identity of election. Peter experienced the choosing of God in a very tangible way. He dropped his nets, he left his father's business, and he became a fisher of men in the business of his heavenly father. Jesus' choosing of Peter was not based primarily or firstly upon Peter's choice of him, but rather on Jesus' choice of him by the electing will of God. Some of you might have read in my biography that I was a cowboy for a number of years. And um, when I was working with a group of cowboys, uh, sometimes cowboys will give a horse to a certain uh, young, fresh cowboy, a greenhorn. They'll give him one of the hardest horses to ride so he'll get bucked off and look funny in front of people. And so I was given a horse, and his name was Mocha. And this horse, if you go back into the history of how this group of cowboys acquired this horse, three years prior to me actually getting this horse, uh, this horse was acquired by the cowboys that I was working with. They went for a little trip up to Susanville, California, to the Bureau of Land Management. And you can, um, for I think it's $300, you can purchase a wild horse. And so they load up on their broke horses, and they go out and they find a herd of horses that is wandering wild on this plain outside of kind of uh, south of Yosemite. And there's a group of horses out there that are untouched by man. They know nothing of men. They have the fear of man is ingrained in them. It is their natural disposition. And when those cowboys get closer, what do you think the herd does? It splits. And it runs for dear life. It is deathly afraid of men. It has an anthropophobia, a phobia of man. And yet when those cowboys were there and they saw those horses, they chose three out of a band of 20 horses. They charged hard after them. They skied and steered them into a little catch corral. And then they picked out the ones that they would choose. And then they loaded them up into a trailer and the horses were fighting and kicking the whole way and treating that trailer like it's a tin can with hoof prints that are kicked so hard into the sides that the, the, the paint is beginning to peel. Horses in their natural state like this do not want to have anything to do with man. They have a great fear of men. They do not initiate relationships with cowboys. And likewise, mankind in his natural state, the Bible teaches us we have a theophobia, a God fear. But it's not the fear of God that would lead us to him. It's a phobia. Sin causes us not to run to God, but to run from God. And outside of God taking the initiative to initiate a relationship with us, beloved, we would never come to God any more than those horses would come to a cowboy. It's impossible. And yet God, in his divine grace, his love, his wisdom, his charity, initiates that relationship. 
Beloved, the doctrine of election is not this elitist doctrine that we hold over people, but it is a, a demonstration of the love and mercy, the tenderness of God that he would choose to initiate a relationship with any of us to bring him to himself based on his own choosing. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 gives us another insight into how this choosing takes place of God, the doctrine of election. One of the most foundational verses here that teaches the profundity of this truth. Our choosing, God's choosing of us is not to be a source of contention in the church, but it's actually supposed to be a source of great celebration amongst God's people. Great opportunity to be amongst the family of God, adopted as sons and daughters. Look what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, but we should always give thanks to God for you. He's speaking to the Thessalonians. Beloved or brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has what? Chosen you from the beginning for salvation. What a wonderful thought. You and I need no longer wander afraid from God on the plains of this world, running and fleeing out of fear from God, but there's a great thankfulness that should come about, overtake our hearts with thanksgiving. You know the wonderful thing about that horse later after, um, after he'd been taken from those plains and he'd been given food, a staple diet? He'd been given, um, he, we would shoe the horse. It would cost $80 to keep him up with his shots. He lived a lot longer life. There was great benefits to being the chosen for that horse. And if horses could talk outside of Mr. Ed, the horse would say, thank you. He would. Every time you threw a flake of hay to him that he didn't have to work for and scrounge over a mass acreage on a plane, thankfulness would awaken in his heart. And God wants that very same thankfulness to be overcoming our hearts when we understand that we've been chosen in him. God wants our election to be part of our identity in him and to be a reason that we thank God continually for this new identity. Now, long before my wife Erica and I found ourselves at the altar and exchanging vows, I chose to place my love and my affection on her by choosing to establish what I would call a redemptive relationship it was a mutual redemptive relationship in that my wife redeemed me from a life of singleness. But it was also a redemptive relationship whereby I redeemed her from a life of being a single mom. And it was based on my initiating a choice to select and pursue her into this new relationship that we would have. And then we got to the altar, we got married. It was a wonderful time, one of the best days of my life two and a half years ago. And the Lord has used my wife immensely in my life. And not only did Erica receive a new husband that day, but she received a new identity that day. Her identity is as my chosen. I elected her outside of all the other women that were potential candidates, which probably was not a whole lot for me. 
but she became my chosen. It was her new identity, an identity, beloved, that for each and every one of us who have a spouse, we take great identity in. We hold it very close, very near, and very dear. So how does this new identity happen? Well, we don't know a lot about the doctrine of election, and quite frankly, it still is very mysterious to many of us. And I never profess to know all there is to know about the doctrine of election. I would be arrogant and prideful to do so. I don't exactly know how it works out in the nitty-gritties of life when it comes to unborn babies or when it comes to abortion or when it comes to even people that die at a ripe old age. I don't claim to know that. And yet, we do get a little glimpse into how it happens in an explanatory sentence that Peter says right after that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So what is this idea of foreknowledge? Well, it's the Greek word prognosis. Prognosis. We've all heard of prognosis, right? You go to the doctor and uh, he, uh, he looks at your symptoms he diagnoses you, and then he gives you a what? Prognosis. And you ask your doctor, Doc, I don't know, um, how long will it be? How long will I suffer? What is the prognosis of this? How do I treat this? And the doctor, knowing your symptom, will make a prognosis. And it basically gives this idea of knowledge ahead of time. You're asking your doctor to have knowledge ahead of time. Now, your doctor is finite, and he is a fallible human being that doesn't know the future. But the God that you and I serve, that we are in Christ in, knows everything about the future. He is the only one that can give you an accurate prognosis. And is God before the foundation of time and laid the frames of the universe was thinking about you and I and humanity, his prognosis for humanity was that it was doomed to sin. That humanity would fall in their father Adam. It was not a matter of if, but when. And in the garden, Adam came down with the disease of sin by disobeying God. Then God looked ahead and had it been the foreknowledge of that fallenness that would infiltrate the spiritual DNA of every single person that would be born of Adam. He made a prognosis ahead of time. And he chose us knowing full well that we would be lost and dead in our trespasses and sins. While we were yet sinners, Christ what? Died for us. It wasn't that God looked down the corridor of time and saw you choosing him, so he affirmed that decision ahead of time and chose you. It was that when he looked ahead of time, you and I had the disease of sin. We had the legal forensic declaration of condemnation as a result of the sin of Adam against us. And God made Jesus, the, before the foundation of the world, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus was chosen to be the Messiah that would purchase the freedom that you and I would enjoy in Christ. That's this idea of prognosis, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. God knows ahead of time 
He knew that our Godophobia, our fear of God, would be so great that he would have to divinely insert himself into human history to overcome our rebellion against him. Sinners don't naturally run to God, they run from him. They don't come to God with open arms. They close their fists and shake it at the heavens in rebellion. They can no more initiate a relationship with God than a deer out in the woods can initiate itself with a human. So what is, why is Peter teaching this? Why is he introducing this very deep doctrine at the very onset of his book? Well, it's this, a very practical purpose. Why am I talking about some of the deeper things of theology? Well, I want to get us to the practical application of the doctrine of election. Beloved, in the midst of crisis, our identities get a question mark that's put over them. Who are we? Are we Americans first? Or are we kingdoms of his beloved son first? Are we what our neighbors perceive of us? What our academic institutions have given us with our degrees and our credentials? What our boss thinks of us? Are we those things Or are we more than that? Beloved, when those things are ripped from us as a result of stands that we take and persecution that we get, sometimes our identity, if it's placed in those things, will feel like it's been ripped and taken from us and we have nothing in our hands. And yet within our hands, we have the identity of aliens and strangers. And secondly, we have the identity as being the chosen, the elect of God. In the midst when the world will have nothing to do with us, when the world's rejection, we are comforted here by the Apostle Peter that we are chosen by God. And that's Peter's challenge to us this morning. It's why he brings up this idea at the very onset of his letter. He wants us to understand our identity in Christ amidst the crisis. And beloved, we don't know what the future holds. We don't know the crisis that are waiting around the corner for the American church. But we do know worldwide there is great persecution that happens to believers. And beloved, God will use that in your life and my life and in the life of believers all throughout the church, throughout the world, to foster a deeper identity of what it means to be found in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, Lord. It is truth. It is what we are sanctified in, Father. And it gives us not only a right understanding about who you are, is our creator, our redeemer, our father. Father, but it also gives us a right understanding of who we are. Lord, we know that outside of a saving relationship with Christ and the recognition of him, is our Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of sins, that, Lord, we would be sheep that have gone astray, that would be lambs that are led to the slaughter, Lord, because of the wrath of God that comes upon the world for its sin and disobedience. But yet we know that in Christ, Lord, you give us a new identity, an identity that transcends the temporality of this world, that transcends titles, 
that transcends diplomas, that transcends clothing, style, fashion, position, all of these things that we are so tempted to find that identity in, Lord. Identity in Christ is based on the eternal one, Lord. Pray that if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't have this new identity in Christ, that is still seeking the things of this world to define themselves, oh Lord, may they turn to you and receive a new identity in Christ. May you burden their heart, Father, for you, that you would draw them to a saving relationship with you this very morning, Lord, that they would not leave this church living hope without having the living hope, without having that new identity. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.